My name is Brian Hollins, founder and managing partner of Collide Capital. I am redefining venture capital by unlocking the back door for those who unfairly get stopped at the front. Welcome to The First Close, Carta's podcast about the people who are building next-generation venture capital firms. We interview new voices in venture about their ambitions and challenges as they aim to redefine the industry. At Carta, we help VCs build enduring venture franchises, starting with Fund One. To learn more about how Carta expands access to equity and transforms capital markets, visit us at carta.com. That's C-A-R-T-A dot com. I'm Jessica Strauss, host of The First Close. Today, we interview Brian Hollins, founder and general partner of Collide Capital, a seed-stage venture fund investing in consumer and enterprise. Brian is not your typical VC. He's in his second year at Harvard Business School, and during his time in school, has also launched a venture firm. But what is truly atypical about Brian is his focus not only on starting a venture fund, but also his proactive leadership in giving back to the venture ecosystem. Brian is a founding board member of Black VC, the preeminent organization for Black investors, and he is also founder and CEO of the Takeoff Institute, a nonprofit supporting Black undergraduates in their transition from college to their careers. Brian's focus on giving back is rooted in his own experience. Brian graduated from Stanford University and went on to spend six years at Goldman Sachs, working across three different divisions. And as he describes it, having Stanford on his resume opened doors, and he wants to create that experience for others. Since departing Goldman Sachs, Brian has spent time working at storied venture capital firms, including Lightspeed Venture Partners and Slow Ventures. And now he is setting out to build his own fund. As always, we'll start with our guest slash line, the key stats that make up their unique track record. Let's go into Brian's slash line. Brian has built or co-founded three organizations and founded one podcast, including Black VC, The Takeoff Institute, Collide Capital, and his podcast, The Road Untraveled. Brian has been in the investment world for six years. He launched his firm, Collide Capital, six months ago. Brian has made 28 investments and had two exits. He serves on one nonprofit board, and he has 1,000 followers on Twitter. Brian, welcome. I'm excited to have you on the first close, especially because you're a first-time VC who is raising your first fund while you are in business school. I'd love for you to just share with our audience all the things that you are working on today. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast and big fan of Jessica as well. So it's good to get to do this together. I appreciate the suggestion that I'm doing a bunch of things well. I try to do them well, but sometimes fail at that. But I certainly believe that all the things I'm doing are driving towards one mission, which is to drive generational wealth and opportunity for the black community. As you mentioned, I'm finishing up my time at Harvard Business School. I'm also a founding board member of Black VC. Today is the most preeminent and largest black investor ecosystem in the country. While at school, I started a nonprofit called the Takeoff Institute. The Takeoff Institute is equipping black undergraduate students with the resources and mentorship they need to launch a young professional career. We focus on identifying the skills that you need to get a job in 2021, as opposed to what I think a lot of the programs that train them today get them ready for, which is a job in 2007 or a job in 2012. And so how has the world for 
Gen Z and for millennials changed and what are some of the skills and tactics that they need to be thinking about as they head out into the real world. And then finally, a managing partner of Clyde Capital. So building a $55 million seed stage fund to focus on investing into the ecosystems where my partner and I have disproportionate access. I want to talk about Collide, but let's first talk about Black VC and the Takeoff Institute. You're founding board member of Black VC. You are the founder and CEO of the Takeoff Institute, which, as you said, supports Black students on their career paths. In my experience, most investors do not have this broader mission-oriented focus until much later in their careers. But you've decided to take these things on early in your career. Why have you decided to pursue these opportunities alongside everything that you're doing on your own? You know, I was given a shot, maybe unfairly. I went to Stanford for undergrad and probably had some doors open for me that weren't necessarily open for people that look like me that didn't have a Stanford degree next to their name. And so I fundamentally believe that giving people an opportunity, giving people a shot is one of the best things that you can do for the generation that's coming behind you. I sort of challenge my friends oftentimes to say, why are you going to wait until you're 50 and rich to start a nonprofit? Aren't you closer to the problem right now? Aren't you potentially the solution right now at 25, at 29, at 34, whatever it may be? And so, you know, when I think about just tactically starting to get more involved in ways of giving back, I always just say the best way to do it is to find the problem that you just so coherently understand. You know, I went to Stanford. I broke into Goldman Sachs. I spent six years at Goldman Sachs, and then I ran Stanford Diversity Recruiting for the firm for a couple of years. And I really got a chance to see what puts people in the right pile or the wrong pile from a resume perspective. And in that process, I learned it's oftentimes these little things that you're only going to know if your uncle's a managing director at Goldman or your brother's in private equity or these things that unfortunately most of the black community just doesn't have access to. And so I said, what if I built a fellowship that allowed these students to get those same resources, get that same access to knowledge and mentorship. Why do I have to wait until I have two million bucks to do that? I can start it right now with an Excel sheet and a PowerPoint and use my LinkedIn to get people to apply. So we have a fellowship program. We had over 300 kids apply. We took 50 of them through the fellowship last summer. We have another 50 in the fellowship right now and have built partnerships with organizations like the Wall Street Journal and Wall Street Prep to give them Excel and PowerPoint tutorials and Headspace to give them opportunities to learn about mental mindfulness. And so just super excited about recognizing that these things take a while to build. They don't happen overnight and they don't need to happen overnight. They don't need to have a hockey stick growth curve to them because Sequoia and Lightspeed aren't invested in them. I don't know anyone growth. I just owe these kids a shot. And so I've enjoyed that process. I think it makes me a better human, a better investor, sort of all the above. And so I've enjoyed doing it and will continue to do it as I continue to progress in my career. And what about your own experience immediately post-college? You worked at Goldman Sachs. Are you taking from and integrating into the Takeoff Institute? And what kind of changes would you make about your own experience? Goldman gave me institutional knowledge. It helped me understand what it's like to be at a 30,000-person organization. It helped me understand what it's like to have a compliance organization that doesn't let you have a blog post or checks every single thing you do before you send it out and the sort of bureaucracy that comes with being in a massive organization like that, but also the resources that come with something like that. I could call someone in London or call someone in Tel Aviv or call someone in Southeast Asia and I could get an answer or at least a strong opinion from an expert on any given topic. And so I really learned a lot about institutional know-how and knowledge transfer. I think the thing that I don't take from Goldman 
and maybe that I've learned a little bit more in my time at HBS is the importance of building confidence in your entrepreneurial journey. It's really hard at a place like Goldman to think of yourself as an entrepreneur or to think of yourself as a builder. And so I spent six years thinking of myself as a professional and as someone that could climb the ladder quickly. I, I sat in three different divisions. I got a chance to invest in a variety of really successful companies. I sat on stages at conferences. You know, I was building my career, but I was certainly not building my entrepreneurial itch. And I got to HBS and that really got unlocked for me. If any of the listeners are familiar with the case method, HBS teaches in a very particular manner. It's not just a professor lecturing to you. You sort of learn through experience and you learn through reading stories about other people. And what I quickly learned was most of those successful people that were running these massive organizations, if you reverse engineered all the way back to when they were sitting in my seat at HBS, many of them had no clue what they wanted to do. Many of them had imposter syndrome. Many of them had all the things that I think all of us have. And so building that confidence and building that belief that you can go out and solve the world and create change for other people is something that I didn't have in my time at Goldman. And I really try to relay that to our students now. They don't know what they're doing. They aren't sure where they should start. But if they build a little bit of confidence, it unlocks that potential for them. It allows them to just see a little bit further down the road or look a little bit above whatever ceiling they had placed on themselves. And from where I sit, you have totally undergone this transition from professional to entrepreneurial builder. Not only have you founded the Takeoff Institute, you don't just have a blog, you have a full podcast, The Road Untraveled. <laughs> Shout out to The Road Untraveled, an awesome podcast interviewing VCs. I definitely suggest you check it out. And you're also building this venture firm, Collide Capital. So Walk us through your thinking around building your own firm. A lot of the themes we talk about on this show is when is the quote unquote right time to launch your own fund? Mm -hmm. Why do you not want to join another firm and ascend the venture ecosystem that way? Why is now the right time for Collide? And what is your worldview that you want to express through the investments that you're making? Part of it is just being honest about momentum, right? As a Black emerging manager, our country is going through some difficult times and recognition that we need more Black investors in GP seats, in seats to write checks and have the capacity to make decisions to drive wealth into diverse communities, not just Black, but Brown and female and underrepresented in general. I sort of saw that potential and that opportunity and said to myself, why not me? I found an incredible partner who has operating experience and has a breadth of knowledge on the founder side of the table. And if I can bring my investor acumen and the resources and ecosystems and networks that I have access to. And we can combine them and build a collective ecosystem that founders would aspire to be a part of. You know, Why not do that? And so we went out and raised a proof of concept vehicle, a $1.1 million vehicle through a variety of LPs, Lightspeed Venture Partners, Canaan Partners, Pair VC, Flybridge Capital, and NDVC. And over the last 18 months, have made 28 investments have deployed a little over $950,000 of that vehicle. And it's really allowed us to do a couple things. One is identify where we actually have access. So you might think you have access at the schools you went to or the organizations you come from. Once you start writing checks and actually trying to get on cap tables and lose a deal here or there, you really understand where you have access. Two, I think maybe more importantly, we learned how to work together. So we wrote memos together. We figured out where we added value to founders we fought over deals. We knocked each other's deals down and tried to figure out what made sense to be in our portfolio. And it gave us a chance, I think, 
to hit the ground running with fund one. Whereas a lot of funds, they have to just assume or guess where these things are going to be. And then they get to a first close and then try to start it. And so I feel like we have 18 months of runway now that'll allow us to do that in a more efficient manner. And I think maybe finally, it's just that confidence piece that I just told you about. You know, I've had a chance to work at some phenomenal funds. I spent a summer at Lightspeed Venture Partners in between my two years at HBS. I worked at Slow Ventures, which is another phenomenal fund. And in seeing these vehicles, I think what I quickly learned is venture is more art than science. You know, I've sat in a Goldman Investment Committee, a Lightspeed Investment Committee, a Slow Investment Committee. They're completely different. And the types of founders that those groups look for, the archetype of company that those groups look for is entirely different. And so I fundamentally believe the best way to become a really strong investor is the Fred Wilson way, which is reps. It's about seeing a company move from seed to a billion or seeing a company have to fire its entire executive team and then rebrand. Getting those reps is extremely important. And if I know and have confidence that I want to do this in 30 or 40 years from now, now is the best time to start. And I think it's really difficult as venture has expanded to have an associate seat or a principal seat and really get the chance to understand if you're a good investor. You have you know, a calling card that has a logo on it that has nothing to do with your brand. And you might bring five things to an investment committee, but really the only one that gets done is the one that the partner feels like doing. It has nothing to do with really your own personal thesis. And so if I have the potential opportunity to build a vehicle because the market, one, believes that there needs to be more people that look like me in those seats, and two, because I have the background now, having spent six years in the industry to do it, I think it's a really unique opportunity. And maybe it'll take me longer to make any money because I could have just gone and sat in my associate seat. And maybe it'll take a little bit longer because not all LPs believe in what we're building. But you know, I do fundamentally believe that if we can get over the hump and start to deploy this vehicle, that we have an opportunity to become really good investors. And the proof of concept fund, the $1.1 million fund, I think it's a really interesting way to start building your own firm. As you said, you and your partner understood how to come to conviction together. You had all these arguments. You had experiences getting access or not getting access. Where did you land? What kinds of founders do you want to support? Now that you've spent time at established venture firms, you've deployed capital from your own fund. What are the lessons you took from that initial fund? You know, we're lucky to have Jason Green from Emergence Capital and Josh Koppelman at First Round are two of our advisors for the fund. You know, we've learned a lot about founder archetypes through those guys. And really, for two guys who have had the chance to back so many incredible people, it's hard at the seed stage when you don't have unit economics, when you don't have a ton of traction, when you don't have a bunch of customer cohorts to look at. When I was in my growth role at Goldman, I could open a data room and pretty much tell you whether 8 million in ARR was going to 30 or not. And I had a ton of different ways of sussing that out. At the seed stage, you have a deck and a couple referrals, and it's just a fundamentally different process. And so you really need to trust the founders that you're backing. And so we try to spend time with our advisors and really think of it as an apprenticeship model. You know, nobody has a perfect founder archetype. So what are the best practices we can take from all of them, stitch it all together, and then make it the formula for Collide Capital. And so one of the big things that I think we look for is storytelling. We look for founders that not only understand how to take a very complex product and make it simple and easy for either a customer or an investor to understand, but maybe more importantly, storytelling on the culture building side. And so we look at a lot of founders who can raise $3 million, but can't get anyone to come work for them. And so how do you as a founder build culture, build aspiration, 
you know, start to build community and make it really easy for someone to know, hey, that's the type of person I want to go work for. So we spend a ton of time with our founders trying to assess their ability to storytell, their ability to help those around them paint a clear picture for where they're going and what they're building. The second thing is, I think this term is used a lot now, but founder market fit. Is this a founder who fundamentally understands the market that they're trying to build in? Do they have a pain point from a prior experience? Do they have experience at a company that refused to build this offshoot that they knew was important to their customers and now they're out building it on their own? I think that especially on the enterprise side, that's something that I've seen be incredibly successful as a use case for a successful seed entrepreneur. And then the third is if and when we can get picky, serial entrepreneurs are incredible to back. You know, folks who have experience building something in the past, getting from seed to series A is super difficult. And having experience understanding how to get to your first 10 customers, how to get all the systems built internally, how to get all the things that a first-time entrepreneur might struggle with done without needing to go to all your advisors or resources is incredibly useful from a momentum perspective. And so I think those are all things that we look for. And at the end of the day, we're very opportunistic. You know, we tend to believe that we might have a thesis around a couple different areas, but interesting teams spin out of HBS every year and interesting teams spin out of Goldman or Stanford or Black VC or whatever it may be, you need to be on your toes and you need to be out in these founder ecosystems and authentically be a part of them because you can't just show up with capital anymore. I think five years ago, 10 years ago, an invite to a YC demo day was actually a barrier to entry. There were only 50 of you and you got pretty good looks. And you know, last time I checked, YC demo days are online now and that's no longer going to cut it. And so you need to be able to authentically build relationships with founders and I personally believe that the best way to do that is to be integrated in their ecosystems, to spend time with them, to give them access to things before you ask to be on their cap table and really just kind of be in the trenches with them. What are you finding about cap table access, especially as a new brand and venture? You've already built a strong network, but as much as you have a founder archetype, the best founders have a VC archetype of the partners they want to work with. And in the last 18 months or so that you've deployed the proof of concept vehicle, I'd love to hear a time when it was hard to get cap table access. And why was that? I look at Phoenix as a really good example. Richie Cerna, CEO at Phoenix, company was first led by Sequoia, then a bunch of things happened and Lightspeed ended up taking it over. That was impossible to get on the cap table of. And Richie decided to build a $3 million SPV only for black and Latin investors. And I'm not saying that that's the way that we build our entire portfolio. I don't think that we're going to sit around and wait for people to give us handouts. But what I think that's recognition of is the fact that for a long time, founders spent a ton of time worrying about diversity in their company and not necessarily diversity on their cap table. And I think that for the first time, we're seeing a reckoning of that where the old rich white guy that used to block everyone else from getting on the cap table is now getting questioned and is now getting, you know, hey, is there any way we could look at your portfolio and just get a better sense of diversity before we make this investment? Or, hey, you know, have you guys ever backed a black founder or a Latin founder before? And these questions get harder to avoid. We're now 18 months past the murder of George Floyd. And if you haven't spent any time trying to identify some of your biases or some of the things that have kept you from having a diverse cap table, why would I want you to come into my company? I'd say that's the first thing is recognizing that as two young black emerging managers, we just have an incredible opportunity to be one with the companies that we're spending time with. I think the second thing is we have very unique access to ecosystems that I think that our founders care about. 
And so we spend a ton of time helping them better understand millennials and help them understand Gen Z and help them understand the black ecosystem. And it's oftentimes a consumer base that they're not very familiar with. And so the ecosystems that we have access to that they can then leverage and get their product or their platform in front of a variety of different constituents that they traditionally don't have access to is something that we've really tried to take advantage of. This concept of access and this old guard kind of holding back opportunity for others really speaks to one of the core principles of this show, which is that there's this huge need for transparency and better access across the venture ecosystem, whether at the company level, the VC level, and the LP side. I want to get into the programs and communities out there that are dedicated to opening access. So you just became a Kauffman Fellow, one of the oldest fellowships out there for VCs now on its 26th year. But there's new programs too. There's Recast Capital, Transact Global, VC Include, the Founder Institute, VC Lab, Operator, and others. What do you make of these programs? Do you think that they're addressing the core issues that emerging managers face, whether they're around access and education or the tactical side of building a VC community and firm? I think it's early to know. First of all, I'm in a bunch of them. So shout out to VC Include, shout out to Recast, shout out to a 4A Angel Fund Manager program, shout out to Kaufman. I, first of all, feel very privilege to be a part of a variety of these ecosystems because they didn't exist 10 years ago when a Charles Hudson or a Low Tony or a Marlon Nichols or some of these folks were trying to build funds. They didn't exist and you had to do it in a much more piecemeal way. So I think of these programs as YCs for emerging managers. In many ways, they provide certification and validation and access and resources. That does not necessarily mean that there aren't billion dollar companies that don't go through them. And on the flip side, it doesn't necessarily mean that every company that comes through them is going to be a billion dollar company. I guess what I mean by that is it's still really early to know whether these platforms are catalyzing high performing funds or if they're catalyzing funds in general. And those are two very different things. And it'll take us seven to 10 years to really understand that. But with that said, they all are doing one incredible thing, which is opening doors for people that otherwise couldn't get access. And I think that that's a fundamental point of contention in venture. You know, if you talk to any emerging manager, it's not that hard to get a first meeting. What's really hard is getting a warm intro from someone that that fund respects that allows you to accelerate to meeting three. Mm-hmm. That's what's really tough in this process. I have no problem getting in front of LPs right now. I can meet families, I can meet foundations, I can meet endowments, I can meet institutions. What's really hard is moving them into a first close mm-hmm. and getting them across the line. And I also like to be empathetic, right? I recognize that their job has gotten much more difficult. Five years ago, they would look at 25 to 50 funds in a year. Right now, they probably look at 300 to 500 funds in a year. And so many of them don't have pipelines built. Many of them don't have infrastructure internally to manage that. Many of them have funds coming back to them in two years, asking for another $50 million when they had them earmarked for coming back for that in four years. And so the pace at which venture is moving is making it harder for the LP ecosystem. But I do believe that in time, the existence of these types of programs will allow a different type of emerging manager to break through. And I hope that that different includes 
female managers. I hope that it includes black and brown managers, because at the end of the day, those are the folks that oftentimes get stuck. And I think what these programs, whether it's Kaufman or a foray or VC include, what I would hope that they provide to LPs who, as you said, have 10x the volume of venture funds that they're looking at, what I hope these programs provide is high signal. So that if you are affiliated with XYZ program, depending on the types of managers that come out and their performance, like that will create a signal. And I think we need, broadly speaking, more new types of signals in venture, that signal quality. So taking a look into your approach to the LP ecosystem, I do think it's an inscrutable place sometimes, you know, understanding who the LPs are what kind of checks they'll write, how long you need to get to know them. Basically, what's your lead time to a first close? Is it 10 years or is it two months? How have you made sense of the LP ecosystem? It's fascinating. And again, I'll go back to the more art than science comment I made around identifying founder archetypes. There is no one way to close a fund. Totally. I can give you examples of folks that were out there for three months and got it done because they built the right momentum. I can give you examples of folks that took two and a half years. I think what's most important to recognize is in the process of meeting LPs, sending updates and identifying ways to demonstrate progress is one of the most important things that we've tried to focus on. And so I'll use our fund zero as an example. There was a time where there were zero dollars deployed, no companies with up rounds, et cetera, et cetera. If we didn't send a single update between then and now, which is 28 companies, seven up rounds, two acquisitions, Andreessen behind us, Emerson Collective behind us, Group 11 behind us, Salesforce Ventures behind us, a bunch of really talented folks who are investing after us, then we would have missed the opportunity to show these LPs that we're very serious about what we're doing, that potentially we're good at what we're doing, et cetera. And so, you know, I really challenge new emerging managers to use time as not necessarily something that holds you back or makes you think that, oh gosh, this is going to take forever, but really as the way to build progress without necessarily being on the phone every month with these folks. You should think of it as a B2B sales pipeline. You need to build top of funnel, but you also need to squeeze people through the middle and you need to identify ways of moving people into a data room or into checking referrals on you because you don't just go from first meeting to investment committee. And anyone who tells you you do probably doesn't look like me and has 15 more years of experience in venture than I do. I really do think that this process, albeit not fair, is somewhat approachable. And if you're disciplined, if you really do want to do this, if you really do spend the time getting to know the LP ecosystem, and frankly, being resourceful, using one person to get you an intro to another, sending an update and asking people for honest feedback on your deck, using other emerging managers that are six months ahead of you or 12 months ahead of you and asking them for guidance. You know, there are a variety of ways to approach this business, but I do think the LP ecosystem is fascinating and you're not going to learn it overnight unless you worked at a fund of funds. You know, you need to talk to a hundred LPs before you understand the difference between how to approach a family office meeting versus how to approach an endowment meeting versus how to talk to Cambridge, you know, et cetera. So it's fascinating. I'm learning a lot. I think if you asked me in a year from now, I'd probably have even more about the best way to approach it. But hopefully some of those tactics are helpful for folks that are just getting started. I love what you said about 
providing meaningful, consistent updates because one result I would imagine that you're finding is that demonstrates that you are a responsible steward of capital. And that's exactly what LPs want to see. If it's an endowment, their constituency are the students and the university. And understanding, as you said, having an empathetic approach to the LP, what are they seeking? You're an asset manager. You're a glorified asset manager because you're in venture and it's sexy and you know you work with founders all day, but you have a fiduciary responsibility. You're running the assets of a variety of different limited partners who all have a variety of different incentives and a variety of different interests. And your job is to steward, to your point, to steward that capital in the most effective manner possible. And so I like to believe that the institutional training I have from Goldman and understanding what it means to manage, you know, I sat in the private wealth division where we managed $15 billion of assets at one point on my team and understanding how to build a portfolio, understanding fund construction, understanding our role as gatekeepers and fiduciaries is critical because fund two doesn't get raised off of fund one exits. Fund two gets raised off of fund one performance and fund one markups. And, you know, your ability to keep your LPs updated and let them know that the portfolio is trending well is oftentimes what's going to get you to a fund two. So we take a lot of that into account. And again, I think those programs that you started mentioning having the insights of GPs who are on a fund two or on a fund three share those types of things with us has really benefited us and has allowed us to maybe trip instead of fall as we come around all these different corners. Yeah. And tripping and falling and then getting up again, super important. Who are the people you admire and who inspire you? Let's start in the venture ecosystem because I love to shout out the folks who have helped me on my journey. You know, Marlon Nichols, Ryan Neese, Chris Lyons, who's my mentor at Kaufman, Charles Hudson. These are guys who have been in the trenches in venture at a time where it wasn't easy for black managers. It was not easy to raise precursor fund one. Charles would probably say it's not easy to raise precursor fund four, whatever he's on now. But just watching these guys so diligently believe in their journey and just recognize that if they could be helpful to founders, and if they could stay focused on that core competency, that that's really all that matters in venture. At the end of the day, like we said, you're a fiduciary, you know, you're managing capital, but you don't have to sit on every panel. You don't have to have 100,000 followers on Twitter. You need to have founders swear by you. When a founder back channels on Collide Capital and goes to talk to one of our portfolio companies, I need that founder to say, there's no other person that I need more on my cap table than Brian. And I think the process of getting there with founders takes time and takes discipline and frankly takes a ton of energy. And watching folks like that who didn't have the biggest platforms, didn't have the most brand name appeal behind them, didn't necessarily have the track record of exiting from Twitter or Pinterest or anything like that. You know, I really admired the path that those guys we're on. And many of them are now very successful and running much bigger vehicles than they ran when I started in my venture career five years ago. So I think those are definitely a group of guys that I admire. And I'll also give you one a little more personal, which is my two brothers. I'm the oldest of three boys. I grew up with two younger brothers who were knuckleheads and we competed all day. But my middle brother is now wide receiver for the Miami Dolphins. He's been in the NFL for five years. And coming out of high school, he didn't have a single offer to play in college, not D1, not D2, not D3. 
And so he went to a military academy for a year called Fork Union Military Academy, where basically he was going to head into the military, but could get to play football for one more year. And a coach from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, came to watch one of his other players and said, who's that kid? And he was impressed by him and said, if you can get into the school on your own, I'll give you a walk-on spot. And so all of a sudden he started to care about school. He got a 4.0 in his year at the military academy and he walked on at Chapel Hill. And by the end of his freshman year, he was a captain. And so just the relentless pursuit of whatever it is that you believe in and sort of wholehearted effort to get things done when people tell you that you can't do it is something that I've watched my brother just continue to do throughout his career. He won a Super Bowl his rookie year with the Eagles. And it's just been a phenomenal ride to get to watch him on his journey. And my youngest brother was a Marine enlisted out of high school and served for four years and took the GI Bill and is now a junior at Columbia University. And so, you know, we've all just done very different things. But I think the approach of mental fortitude and having a chip on your shoulder and kind of doing things that people tell you you can't, I'd put Collide Capital in that same bucket. There's a lot of people that tell me, I need to go sit at a fund for six more years before I'm allowed to start my own fund. And, you know, one, I tell them to kick rocks, but two, it keeps me motivated and it keeps me hungry to make this fund exceptional and to build an ecosystem that founders aspire to be a part of. So that's who I admire. I love those stories about your brothers and especially the moment where motivation gets unlocked, like your brother determined to walk on at Chapel Hill. I love that. And you're at this moment determined to raise Collide Capital. I love that. That's what Takeoff Institute is, right? Like I said, it's sort of full circle for me. Everything I do, try to drive generational wealth and opportunity for the Black community. And Takeoff is very much the same thing. All I'm doing is unlocking these kids. I'm not some magical grant gifter. I don't have $50,000 of scholarship for all of them. But I think if I can give them the resources that I wish that I had, when I was a sophomore or junior in college, I think I can unlock a little bit of confidence in them that sends them on an entirely different trajectory as they head out into their young professional career. So I believe we all have the potential to do that. It's just that we have to spend a little bit of time and energy to find the group that we care about because I don't make any money building Takeoff Institute. I do it because I wake up and energy sort of gets me through some of the harder times. And I think if you can find the thing that gives you energy and joy in the form of giving back, you should start doing that tomorrow. Brian shared his view that venture capital is more art than science, and raising fund one certainly requires both. To demonstrate to future LPs that the thesis behind Collide Capital could work, the team raised what they call Fund Zero, a million-dollar proof-of-concept fund that they deployed across 28 investments. And as Brian shared in our interview, Fund Zero has played a crucial role in sharpening the team's abilities their ability to make good decisions, to get allocation on cap tables, and to create value for founders. And being sharp, capable, and active is critical for new funds, especially small new funds. According to NVCA PitchBook data, $74 billion in capital was raised by 338 funds in the first half of 2021. First-time venture funds account for $3.6 billion of that capital, or roughly 5% of all funds. The majority of capital is concentrated in large funds, funds that are raising a billion dollars or more. Micro funds that are raising $50 million or less comprise a tiny sliver of the total. And while there are more funds than ever in the marketplace, it remains a challenging market for first-time funds. And one thing we talked about in our conversation was the rise of programs to support emerging fund managers. 
New entrants to venture might always be a small portion of the total funds out there. But as Brian and others demonstrate, new funds with new teams and differentiated strategies are launching, and it's up to limited partners to keep up. This podcast is presented by eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. The opinions of the guests and host are their own and do not reflect the view of eShares Incorporated doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. Listeners should not treat any opinion or comments as investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice. The content of the podcast is not legal, financial, or tax advice and is not meant to recommend or offer the purchase or sale of a security. This podcast is informational only. The First Close is a Hit Start Media production. The show is written and co-produced by me, Jessica Strauss. Hit Start Media founder Theo Miller is creative director, with sound production by Nick Canapa and script production by Mary Kelleher. This podcast is presented by eShares, Inc., doing business as Carta, Inc., Carta, and Carta Ventures.